wondering if I can get some lights up here. That'd be helpful. Well, as, uh, as um, Pastor Doug reminded us already that we're in this Galatian series that's reaffirming over and over and over again that our relationship with God has nothing to do with anything but Jesus. And until we can get that one settled in our minds and our hearts, then we're going to find ourselves in a constant battle, a constant struggle to somehow measure up to the impossible. And uh, I'm, I'm suspecting that many of you, along with me, have been caught in that battle. And uh, we're trying to find a way, we're not trying to find a way, we're discovering the way that God has intended to call us into relationship with him because of what we just celebrated this morning and nothing more. The acclaimed foreign film entitled Three Seasons was a series of vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. And one of the stories is about Hai. He's a, he's a cyclo driver, he, that's a bicycle rickshaw thing, and Lan, a beautiful prostitute. Both have deep, unfulfilled desires. High is in love with Lan. Lan lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in the beautiful world where she works. She hopes that the money she makes by plying her trade will be her means of escape, but instead the work brutalizes and enslaves her. Then High, as the movie progresses, a little vignette, enters a cyclo race and he wins the top prize and with the money he brings land to the hotel. He pays for the night and pays her fee. And then to everyone's surprise, he, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. It's hard for her to grasp the reality of that simple reality. Instead of using his power and wealth to use her for another night, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in a normal world to fulfill her desires to belong. Land finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking that Han has done this to control her, but when it comes up, becomes apparent that she's using his power, uh, that he's using his power to love rather than use her, it begins to transform her, making it impossible to return to a life of prostitution. Hang on to that story. Because in a similar way, Christians are transformed as we accept how Christ loved and died for us while we were unworthy of his love. And so we ask, why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like that completely? Oh, to discover a love at a level way too often missed because we're trying to earn it and it's impossible to do. Selfless love destroys mistrust in our hearts towards God. See, there's a deep need and desire in all of us to experience our Father's love. In Galatians 4, verses 1 to 11, Paul describes, and I'm slipping backwards a little bit in, in our study because I really want to try to pull all these things together. But in Galatians 4, 1 to 11 that we looked at previously, Paul addresses this human need and the greater need to experience God's love when he describes us as his children, as heirs of God the Father. 
It begins by describing us as slaves before we came to know Christ. And, And then he moves on to describe our position as his adult children and heirs of God in Christ. And finally, he appeals to us not to go back to the things that enslaved us. It's an interesting progression that many may easily identify with. So let's work with this progression this morning. Here's our first thought. Outside of Christ, we're slaves to an ungodly force. Paul uses an illustration from everyday life as a metaphor for a a spiritual truth. He, He describes an heir who had the rights to the whole estate but only when he came of age. As a minor, their heir was under the control, under the direction, authority, or even worse, the tyranny of the guardian. You see, the guardian was the administrator of the trustee of the estate and and had the final say in matters pertaining to the estate. He gave no consideration to the little child because he was considered worthless, but instead he dominated and he demanded. He concludes that the child heir is, for all practical purposes, no different than a slave placed over him. The guardian is the law. Then in verse 3, he applies this metaphor to humanity. And in the same way, all humanity outside of Christ is enslaved. This Paul, thus Paul states that, that we, now here at this point he's talking to Jewish Christians, but he says... Um, Uh, that we Jewish Christians were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world as well as the Gentiles who were also enslaved to those same elementary principles. Interesting language. What or who are these elementary forces? Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. This is out of Galatians 4, by the way, if you have your Bibles and want to go there. He He Paul writes, What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, He's no different from a slave. And although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery, under the elementary spiritual forces of the world, and the implication is that the underage are those who have not come to maturity in Christ, who have not come into that relationship. And what or who are these elementary spiritual forces? Well, he tells us that they're These elementary principles are demonic. Verse 8 to 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. The emphasis, or the, 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 uh, the implication there is these demonic forces, the prince and the power of the age. Verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? In reality, demonic forces, forces that are not of God. So he asks, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You see, God gave the law as a gift of grace to Israel for one purpose, and that was to show their sinfulness. And in turn, lead them to a better savior. If I can't get it this way, there's got to be a better way to do it. And so the law was to lead them to Christ. But Satan twisted the law, drove them to despair and condemnation. Plus, he deceived them into thinking they could earn God's approval by obeying the law. It was this double bind that is going on here. So both were enslaved by religious practices. Jews slaved under the law, Gentiles under pagan religious practices. 
Outside of Christ, all humanity is trapped, enslaved, under bondage to something or someone and cannot escape on their own. We have to get that in our mind, friends. There is this thing within us that wants or demands that we prove ourselves, push ourselves forward. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Folks, I wish we could all just stand up and together say we can't do it. That's, that's our reality. Outside of Christ, all humanity is trapped, enslaved under bondage to something or someone and cannot escape. Or I, I wonder, as, as some are trying and, uh, to figure this out, I wonder if Christians can be freed from bad things only to be enslaved to good things. See, the, the point isn't, well, the, the point is, for example, we've we, we got to change this part of who I am because I know it's wrong and it's entrapped me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come over here and I'm going to get involved in other things. And these things could very well be good, reading your Bible, praying more, going to church, being involved. But I need to say very, very clearly to us, that if those are good things, all for the purpose, if, if they're just being done for religious performance, no matter how well-intentioned, it is all for the same purpose and it is no gain for, and it is to gain God's approval. We're not going to get it. We're going to fail. It's a strange little mixture of things, isn't it? And I wonder sometimes, folks, of those of us who've been raised in the church since, well, as long as we can remember, are caught in this predicament of knowing the story, knowing the language, defending the language, defending the story, but somewhere in that whole process, we have failed to allow that to penetrate down inside us, and we're caught in a bondage, a religious bondage. It's what the Jewish people happen to deal with. That's what their struggle. They're following all this. Ever since they were little, they were told, God said, do this. God said, do this. God said, do this. And as they became adults, they discovered that they couldn't do what God said. And I'm wondering if there's a context for evangelical Christianity to be caught in the same bind, struggling for approval, trying to make something work that cannot be worked. John chapter 10, verse 10, puts it rather simply. The thief... Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and to have it to the full. See, this destruction is not the end of the story for us who know Christ. Let's look at number two, the second point here, in this progression. In Christ, we are children of the Father. I I spent time on this last week, so forgive me as I go over it, but I want us to feel the flow. I can't without him. In him I can See, every Jew and Gentile alike are enslaved, but, whether, but when the time was right, God sent his son to redeem us from slavery and make his sons and daughters. In fact, we are part of God's inheritance. We are embedded in the family of God. Verse 4, but when the time had come, fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, to daughtership. See, what this means is that the set time points to God the Father setting the time to decisively terminate enslavement and make us his children as part of the family of God. When we take the elements down here, 
we should almost get some goosebumps when we realize that the world I was once trapped in, the world perhaps you were still struggling within, there was your redemption. It was there, given to us in simple symbols, a, a little wafer and a, and, and a glass of, or a little cup of wine. And all that came together was this Jesus doing everything that was necessary to take away the entrapment if we believe. See, what this means is that the set time points to God the Father, setting the time to decisively terminate enslavement and make us his children as part of his family. The word redeem comes from the slave trade where one can buy a slave's freedom with a ransom price. God's own son paid the price to redeem us from slavery. But this is what we have to get, folks. I have to get, we all have to get, redemption has a purpose. He didn't do it just to do it. He did it because he cared so deeply for our lostness that he put in practice this particular way of doing it because he knew it's the only way we'd ever be able to do it. For how many hundreds of years have we tried doing it right and that didn't work? And so along he comes with his perfect plan, his desire to redeem those for whom he loved that we might be adopted as his children, heirs to the inheritance. In the adoption process, a child was taken out of one family and placed in another family with all the rights and privileges of the biological child, that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, I'm sure that most of us have heard that, but, but do we fully get it? We, we were taken from the demonic world by an act of faith, trusting in this Jesus only, taken from this demonic world and placed into this fully redeemed world, given to us as a perfect gift from Jesus Christ. No conditions required other than faith. Trusting that that's what he wanted to do for us. Now this perhaps is where some yes buts start to fly in some of our minds who've been struggling with this. But I need to say to you again, we, we do have obligations. That, I mean, that's, that's what you're perhaps saying. You're making this sound too easy. You're just thinking all I have to do is ask Jesus into my heart and then off we go. I suppose that's a temptation, but that was never the intention. And I don't think so, so, uh, common sense allows us to go that far. No, we, we know that redemption has a purpose. There are things we have to do, you say. I'm coming back at you saying, no, there is nothing we have to do. But oh, there is so much we get to do. What a difference. You see, it's a fine line, but one leads to enslavement. while the other draws you into this amazing, loving relationship. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And one of those blessings is being in relationship with God as our Father. We do not deserve God as our Father. He's not obligated to adopt us, but he set his affections on us does it as an act of free grace. And when he adopts us, he sends his spirit into our hearts so that we experience him as 
Abba, Father. It's as if he takes his own DNA and implants it in us. We no longer have to relate to God as slaves seeking his approval. This isn't a struggle, friends. This isn't, this isn't some spiritual like, kind of fight. I, I, I got to get it right. I didn't do it right today. I better do it better tomorrow. And yet tomorrow comes and you discover that it's the same thing you've been saying for some lengthy period of time and it's not working. Friends, I want you to know that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, his spirit has been placed in you and the words he wants to hear off your lips right now is, Oh, Abba. Oh, Abba. My father. The greatest gift the gospel promises is the gift of God himself. Now after all this is said, here's the big question. Do you ever feel like you're not experiencing this desire? This change, growth in faith, being shaped by Christ? Or, or, or worse yet, do you, do you ever feel that you or, or people you care about are veering off the road, making decisions that are destructive and, and working against the, their growth in Christ? See, in this passage today, Paul free, feels that same burden. He, he, he makes the point that works of, law, of the law or our earthly attempts to measure up is opposed to spiritual formation, which is the intentional transformation of the inner person, the heart, to the character of Christ. Which leads us to our third point this morning. The context for spiritual formation is relationships. The enemy does everything in his power to separate us from one another. And as Christians, he loves to do it by pointing his finger at us and saying, if they knew about you, they might not like you. If they knew about you, hmm, been there? That, that fight, that, that, that struggle. And so his divisive plan is to create something called individualism. I'll live my world. I'll sing along with Frank Sinatra. I'll do it my way. You, you can see Paul's affection and concern here in verses 12 to 16. He, he, he references them now as, as brothers, these people he's writing to. In another translation, he says, my little children, thinking not, not little kids. He, he's just looking at them as sort of the, the senior among them, the elder among them. And he's looking out at, at these people who found faith in Christ, and he, and he just wants to draw them in. He says, you're my little children. There's something so homey about this because that was always God's intention. That's why he ultimately is taking us home. That's why he can talk about, I want to give you life and that more fully. Or, or those of you who know the, the good old King James, he wants to give us life and that more abundantly. No, this, this is family language. This is getting together in the living room and doing what only families can do, and that is to share and to work together. See, the story goes like this for Paul. It starts in the last part of the 12th verse in verse 14. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Pretty strong language. You see, Paul came to minister to the Galatian church originally because of some kind of ailment that he landed up in their camp. 
His ailment seems to have been a pretty unsightly kind of thing, and yet they did not scorn or they, they didn't despise him. But, but it says they received him as an angel of God, or as Christ himself, or more specific, as a messenger of God. And then their love and their loyalty to Paul begins to pour out. You see, it's what happens within the family. It's seen in, in verse 15, when, where, then is, where then he says, is your blessing for me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. This is the power of true relationship, especially as it can be lived out not only as a theological idea about love, but as love being fully embraced so that it fills us beyond reason. They would have gouged out their eyes and given them to him. That's, that's the way he experienced this relationship. When we become followers of Christ, we become organically related to one another, meaning responsible for one another. Do, do we know the desperate needs of others within this family? Do, do we know? Do we, do we come together on, on a regular basis and, and yet are, other than a, a shaking hands, which is a good thing to do, and, and greeting one another, that's, that's, that's good. But do we know? Are we willing to engage with our family so as to be a legitimate, so as to make, uh, to meet a legitimate response to their need? We need to ask ourselves a question that is recited in various ways throughout the scriptures. My translation of that collection of thoughts throughout the Bible, which asks, am I sacking away money in my account to keep me safe and satisfied as others in this family of God are wondering how they're going to make ends meet? You see, you can't come together in a family and call ourselves family legitimately unless we know the family. You see, as followers of Jesus, I not only receive grace, but from a heart filled with his love, I'm called to extend grace. That's what Paul's modeling for us here. Being organically related demands that I care for you and you care for me. Not legalistically for approval or, or trying to earn favor, but from a heart motivated by the same great grace that was afforded you. But in this context, his love for them demanded that he speak the truth in love. So this isn't all just kind of cozy stuff. This isn't sitting around and kumbayaing in living rooms or whatever. No, no, he starts to now get a little more serious about this. He says, therefore, this is verse, uh, or this is actually, I'm, I'm jumping into Ephesians to give us sort of an, a, an outside context for this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see, we, we value community because it's within the context that our hearts become fertile for spiritual formation. This is where we grow up, in community. Now, I understand fully that open and honest relationships can be difficult and risky, especially if we're more concerned with pleasing man than pleasing God. For he goes on, and, and, and we slip back into the opening part of this letter to, to, that he wrote to the Galatians, and he says in chapter 1, verse 10, for I am now seeking the for I am now seeking for I am not seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because the most loving thing that we can do for each other is gently speak 
the truth in love even if we hurt each other's feelings for a moment, even if we get offended, even if we stir the pot because we must view life with the eternal good in mind and not our temporary comfort. Just remember the operative words, though, are gentle and through love. So Paul asks them, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The depth of relationship is impossible to have with 300 people, but you can have it with 6 to 12 individuals. That's why we have life groups. That's my ad for the morning. Another sermon for another day, perhaps. Relationships is so important. There's another sermon to be had, but let me just say it here. God doesn't even go it alone. God is made up of three persons. We don't fully understand it and get it, but he's a father. He's a son. He's a Holy Spirit because he recognizes that in context, we work best together with someone. So important. And finally, the goal of spiritual formation is Christ-likeness. The reason we're doing all of this and going through some of the hard stuff and, and, and whatnot is because we have a goal. Redemption has a purpose, and the purpose is in the end to become like Jesus. Verses 17 to 20 we want to look at. See, these false teachers were really feeding the Galatians' egos. What they were saying is, the gospel isn't just about Jesus and faith. No, get involved. Give it your best shot. Follow the rules. Join the club. Suffer a little. That self-satisfaction that comes when you bravely follow through with the initiation rites. Ouch for some of them. You have to make this work, he says. Or they, they're saying, you got to make it work. you got to make it work. After all, God only helps those who can help themselves, right? took me a lot of years to realize that God helps those who can't help themselves. Our faith is not about proving we can do it, but realizing we can't do it. And then steps in Jesus. I know it sounds so simple. I know, I, I know there's something inside that says we've got to strive a little harder than all of that. The purpose for trusting Christ alone is for one purpose initially, that Christ be formed in you and I, that the follower of Jesus would experience a spiritual formation which is none other than the intentional, on God's part, the intentional transformation of the inner person, your heart, to the character of Christ. He wants us to be like him. Accomplished, this, this can only be accomplished through faith in the Holy Spirit, and it does not matter if you haven't, it has nothing to do with, with whether you haven't missed Sunday, a Sunday in church or you sit in some committee or you teach Sunday school or you sing in the ministry team or you're part of the pastoral staff. There is not a position that we can hold that will suffice for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that is only available through death to self. Paul's saying that if you or we as a church are playing some gig on the side trying to make our, our faith work, then the light has gone out for us collectively. And we'll be nothing more than a, a building on the hill with a bunch of nice people coming and going. So what does this look like? Well, we need to go back to Galatians 2.20 in our study. It gives us the clue. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. When one comes to faith in Christ, their death to self is the shaping influence of their life. Why? Because Christ comes to live in them. 
He becomes the transforming power in our lives. As one lives by faith, Jesus' character, his life, his power is given freedom to reshape our heart, our thought processes, our desires and appetites, our willingness to love without condition so that our will is free to delight in obeying Jesus. This is confirmed so well in chapter 4, verse 6. Because you're sons, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, have a father. The primary work of God in forming and shaping, transforming us happens in the heart through the work of the Holy Spirit in the mind, not in the mind. For years, I lived as an intellectual Christian. I went to Sunday school from the day that I can't remember. I came all the way up through the system. Parts of it I rebelled against, but I still lived in the home that had the family devotions, that did all the things that were necessary, and I grew up and I eventually became a minister. I knew it all. I knew the answers. I could prepare the sermons. I even helped many people. But it took a few earth-shattering events that caused me to realize that my head knowledge never influenced my heart knowledge because of pride. No, let's call it sin. It was never... I never gave, it was never given permission to break through my selfishness. My heart never came through. I was somewhat nice, a a nice, rationalizing, self-defending Christian, but nice does not cut it. Nice requires Jesus plus me making it work. I wonder if the reason we're failing to see people come to Jesus is because we're nice people. I just ask myself, excuse me, ask myself that question. We, we, we've been silenced, fearful of proclaiming the true gospel because we value nice. Now, I'm not saying we should become obnoxious people, slapping people around with our big black Bible. I'm not talking about that. But on the other hand, we have become perhaps afraid of turning people off or so afraid of turning people off that we're not turning anyone on to Jesus. You see, nice is so much more comfortable When we come to faith in Christ, the spirit of Christ dwells in us, forms and transforms us and works through us by faith. That's the deal. The question is, how is Christ formed in our lives? Answer, you already know, been saying it for a while, by our faith. But we must understand this, if Christ comes and shapes and transforms us from within in our hearts, it's because we rely on him to come and shape and transform us. Christ shapes those who abandon themselves to him, die to themselves, who let go of all the things that they are used to hanging on to, used to shaping them on their own, including religious works. No, Christ takes shape in lives that are willing to become putty in God's hands. One person said it this way. Christ presses the shape of his own face into the clay of our hearts when we cease to be hard, resistant, comfortable, and proud. This also tells us what faith is. It's the assurance that what God will make of you as Christ is formed in you is vastly superior to whatever you could make of yourself. Christ's work in your life is more wonderful than all that you could get for yourself by being a self-made man or woman. I fully understand the difficulty to dying to self. If you're you're struggling with it and need some apathy, come and see me after the service. I get it. 
Our natural self has an amazing ability to either rationalize one's choices or or turn a blind eye to its consequences. And for a while, it, it works until you're trapped by the idiocy of those choices. And with them, your soul slowly dies. You may smile, but it never hits your eyes. The law can't save you. It can only condemn you by shaking its gnarly finger combined with a hideous laugh while wrapping its death hold around you. I know we're running out of time here. But I have to say this. Once again, as we come towards the end of this theological part of the study in Galatians, you can't do this on your own. That's why God calls us into family. I've already said that right, the church. But more, more specifically, a church small enough to care for you as you care for them. In our church, we call this setting life groups. If you're struggling alone, take it from me. You will never achieve the success your heart desires. Our success comes in a Holy Spirit-led community because that's where love can be expressed and grace offered and given. For they are the two necessary ingredients that assure you that in the challenges that come with life, with all its ups and downs and conflicts and fears and temptations, it is there you find yourself in relationship with others who will care for you as you care for them. Well, so much more can be said, and as we continue in this study of Galatians, a lot more will be said, I'm sure. But let me close with this. Invite the ministry team to come at this time, too. I came across this blog written by Ray, um, Ray Ortland under, uh, under a title, The Gospel Coalition. Let, let me read this one to you as my closing comments. We, we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he, but he did not understand our weakness. He, he came home every evening and he asked... So, how was your day? How, 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 did, did you do what I told you to do? Did you, did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did, did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations. And hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. But his remedy was always the same, do better tomorrow. We didn't, because we couldn't. Then Mr. Law died, and we remarried. This time to Mr. Grace, our new husband, Jesus. He comes home every evening, and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty, dinner's burning on the stove, and I wasted my time watching Oprah. Still, he sweeps us into his arms, and he says... I love you, I choose you, I died for you, I will never leave you, nor... Oh, that's his word. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever, and we long to be fully pleasing to him. You see, being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows, oh, what we will do.
when we are loved. Oh, what we will do when we are loved.